Okay, here we are, the first episode of the Good Men Podcast. Tried to keep this introductory episode to 30 minutes or so, and that just didn't work out. We start off discussing the motivation behind this project, its primary thrust, and where I'm coming from, what Good Men aims to do and what it aims to be, and then I just sort of go off on Democrats and the media, Black Lives Matter, and most importantly, the difference between the right and the left. You could call it a rant, but it's also semi-coherent. And in the end, I think you'll get the picture. You'll understand what this is going to be. Let's go see. Here is a book that I think ought to be in every home library. You see, a woman who is single at age 40, having spent 10 or 20 years raising children, is really not quite the same as a man of age 40 who's been working continuously for 20 years. Ah! This should be the show. This is the show. What? This. But it's clear through these tapes, it's clear through Planned Parenthood's own numbers, that they're not about health care, they're about abortion. That's their thing. Look at this lead pencil. There's not a single person in the world who could make this pencil. Remarkable statement? Not at all. You are a liar. Radical meaning not just extreme politics, what they believe in, but how far they're willing to go to win, to win elections. And thuggery, lying and cheating and stealing are things that they've proven over and over again no, they that they're willing to do. We mustn't kid ourselves into thinking that the communists have placed their agitators only into the black communities. They're working both sides of the street. They want hatred, violence, and bloodshed between the races, and they don't care how they get it or whom they use, even children if necessary. You're black or you're white, or you're Latino or you're transsexual, or you're homosexual, or whatever. You're a group. You're a member of a group. The British government wasn't stabbing us in the gut with, uh, with bayonets. They were oppressing us with taxes and regulations. That's what we meant by tyranny 250 years ago. I want the people of America to be able to work less for the government and more for themselves. This is the chief meaning of freedom. I, I think we're talking across purposes. Eternal law is the mind of God. The natural law is a participation in eternal law or a reflection of it. All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. See if you can be some kind of hero. Make the suffering in the world less. This is the show, and we're not gonna change. Welcome to the first episode of Good Men, host Travis Rowley. So after discussing the possibility of a podcast with some people, I decided that the first episode should be sort of an, sort of an introduction, like why a podcast, uh, what's Good Men going to cover. So that's sort of what this is. I think I might say be on here for 30 to 45 minutes or so. Definitely want to try to keep all of these under an hour. I was hoping to do 30 minutes, but I know that's more difficult uh, than it sounds. So just sort of introducing myself in this project a little bit. First off, you know, why am I doing this? I've always been curious about the podcast world. That's one thing. Uh, I just wanted to try this for a while now. I think this could enable me to get out uh, more content. Typically, writing has been my platform of choice. Sort of known for that at this point, a, se a semi-regular columnist over the years in various outlets. Some of you uh, might have read larger works like Out of Ivy and The Rhode Island Republican. 
But I think a podcast, if I can sort of get in a good rhythm with this, ironically, will sort of allow me to hit more topics, even though it's a longer format. Um, I'll be able to create more content because you can just jump on and record. And I'm hoping to do at least one a week. But maybe, maybe it'll end up being two or three, depending on how efficient I can, I can get at it. Who knows? Um, but that's, and that's because, you know, an 800 to 1,000 word column you know, those don't just fall out of your pen. Uh, some of them do, depending on how fired up I am. But, and I've spoken to other writers about this, you know, sometimes weeks and months in the making, if you can believe it, to, to get something out that only takes three minutes to read. Um, so in that respect, this might enable me to create more content for everybody and be, and be more engaged, which is what I've been, I've been uh, itching to do lately. And I really want to do something that, that takes people sort of to the, to the root causes of what's going on. You know, not to shy away from issues like race and Black Lives Matter, feminism and homosexuality and religion, the church. Because that's where you end up when you just keep digging. At least somewhere close to the religious realm anyway. So I wanted to take something that I wanted to do something that takes even great conversations a step further. Places where even, you know, politically incorrect conservatives don't want to go or often don't go. I definitely want it to be Rhode Island centric, you know, a daily indictment of the Rhode Island left is, you know, a term I've used before. I'd like to stick there as much as I can and to focus on like hard examples, local examples, Democrats and activists right here, sort of point them out. Trust me, you don't, have to go far. So no more like um, abstractions or, or theory. When we speak of the hard left, which is my background and focus for almost 20 years now, starting with radical activists at Brown University and then on to the Providence Street activists and sort of tracing them into the Rhode Island Democratic Party and organized labor. And let's just point them out. They have names, trust me. Right next door, people are demonstrating for us what it means to be a hardcore leftist, a neo-Marxist radical, all that stuff. It's not something people want to hear very often, that there are dangerous, even bad people living next door. Friends and neighbors of yours sometimes. Others are just, let's say, well-intentioned, but persistently doing the wrong thing, thinking and voting the wrong way to the point where you have to hold them in a type of contempt as well. Because you're not being honest if you don't. We've seen lately a handful of Catholic priests and bishops like throwing their hands up and finally admitting it's over. You, you can't be a Catholic and a Democrat at the same time. And it's not just about the abortion issue. And that's what we're talking about here. As we attempt to explain the political, you first have to understand the personal. It's conventional and almost universal to say that, oh, you, you have to separate the politics from the personal. Listen, this doesn't mean you have to distance yourself from your more liberal friends or your Bernie Sanders supporting sister. Carry on, by all means, if you can stomach it. What it means, however, is you need to acknowledge that there's a difference between right and wrong and that 
the values that you thought you shared with them, you're the one upholding them. And you need to acknowledge that there's a superiority in certain modes of thought and of certain cultures, which means that there's an inferiority, a depravity in the way other people think and act. Not everyone's the same. Both sides are not the same. And you finally need to recognize that it's become a difference that is so stark at this point that it becomes fairly accurate to say, as I often have, that conservatives are better, better people than liberals. And I'm sure you'll be getting doses of that on this podcast. If you truly want to understand the political, how millions of people can possibly support something like full-term abortions that they'll happily make you pay for, force you to pay for them, why people are unable to recognize like clear evil in front of their eyes or even unable to see plain truth right in front of them. And I'm not talking about the ignorant. I'm talking about the educated, the people in our lives, how they can hold openly contradictory ideals. I believe in freedom and socialism, really. I believe in Christianity and Marxism. You know, I despise racism while I lament whiteness and white privilege. How some people can regret, like, the lack of civility they see going on in our society. They post a sign in their yard that says, hate has no home here. And then they fail to even criticize Black Lives Matter. If you want to understand how so many millions of people can proudly call themselves liberal, but at the same time seek to control every facet of your life, right down to what you're allowed to say, and sometimes what you must say, how they can still seek to control all channels of information by force if necessary, then you have to understand the personal, the human condition the fall of man, or the tendency for people to adopt true evil as a way of life sometimes, oftentimes. So properly understood, conservatism, its culture and its people are superior to progressives and modern liberalism. If Joe Biden wins the presidential election in November, do you think there'll be rioting in the street? Do you think there's a critical mass of Republican voters that will light up your shop if Biden happens to pull this off? If Trump gets reelected, people will be boarding up their windows and you know why. When riots are occurring across the country, sustained riots for months on behalf of the political left, endorsed with more than tacit approval from Democrats, To me, that's evidence of a moral and ethical difference between the two sides. And nothing bothers me more than that false equivalence that we're dealing a lot with right now. When you hear people say that both sides do it or there's enough blame to go around. No, I'm a big fan of finding out who started it, who punched first, who always punches first. And the left is different from the right in some critical ways. They're not just equal counterparts. And there's a 
concerted effort right now to neutralize what everyone is witnessing regarding the nature of the political left. That it clearly houses like the true bar barbarians among us. The violence is over there on that side. After all the nonsense you've heard for decades regarding the threat posed by American conservatives, whoops, it's what we've always known. It's the left that is truly sort of prepared to abandon civilized behavior and torch our cities and kill our cops and crash our restaurants and show up outside our homes screaming, no justice, no peace. Doesn't matter, we're watching this desperate reporting to blame their barbarism on like President Trump's tweets or the handful of Trump supporters who happen to maybe imprudently like be demonstrating alongside the madness in say a counter protest or something. But nobody, nobody's afraid of even the most crazed Trump supporter burning down a Walmart, smashing bricks over people's heads. Let's face it. Again, it's a false equivalence and it's just another lie we're forced to deal with. And it's probably not obvious that the title Good Men is derived from two sources actually. First is Edmund Burke's famous quote that you might have heard during the show's introduction there. You know, all, the, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing, right? That's certainly part of this. This isn't, this isn't just therapy for me coming on here and allowing myself to, to vent about Democrats for a little while, as, as good as it feels. I do see this as, you know, my small part in standing up to what I see as injustice, real injustice, not to mention just total madness sometimes and true, true evil in our midst. And I think Burke's observation has always been correct. Justice does require good men to stand up and just fight it. But the second source is probably less familiar. It's actually from Nietzsche when uh, he observed of certain people this, quote, they've now taken a lease on virtue entirely for themselves. We alone are the good men, the just men. That's how they speak. We alone are the people of goodwill. And they wander around among us like personifications of reproach, like warnings to us as if health, success, strength, pride, and a feeling of power were inherently depraved things for which people must atone someday and atone bitterly. That has always stood out to me the first time I read. And, and doesn't that sound familiar? It's almost like Nietzsche had certain people in mind when he wrote that. And by the way, when he was writing about subtle ethical differences found within a seemingly homogeneous society. Acknowledge your white privilege. You say her name. Put your fist in the air or you're not finishing your meal. Kneel before us and apologize. Shut your mouth. No justice, no peace. And they mean it. I'm, assume, I'm assuming you're privy to the same viral videos of left-wing activists that I watch on a daily basis, because that's what you'll see. 
And again, there's that standard projection of the left. When the final thing they scream at you is fascist. After all of that, you are the fascist. Which is how they justify, which is how they sleep at night, how they justify all of their immoral acts. The actual totalitarianism that they that they they're trying to instill or enforce. That's how they sleep at night, by convincing themselves that they had no choice. This is war. I'm telling you, soft Christians, people, people who have been convinced that the Christian thing to do is to tolerate such evil, are not prepared for this, for what's coming. And you're probably thinking, well, you know, still, how can you in one breath call yourself one of the good men and then fault your political rivals for believing the same thing about themselves? And I mean, I would probably say back to you right away, well, can't you see the difference? Just in behavior alone, you don't see conservatives acting like progressives, do you? And I, I once wrote about this. How before I knew anything about political ideology, conservatism, liberalism, Republicans or Democrats, what they, what they stood for. Just as a young man, I just flat out didn't like liberals. The activist types anyway. I was turned away by their political culture first, before their ideas. And I've just never been able to tolerate liars. But it's still, it's still fair enough to ask, how do you claim the mantle of good while lamenting over the fact that people with competing ideas do the same? There's a contradiction there. There's a hypocrisy, isn't there? And this is something we'll discuss often because it's one of my obsessions, more like, more like a pet peeve. This idea that the American right and the American left are somehow equal counterparts that the truth has to be somewhere in the middle. I entirely reject that. The, the explanation here begins, again, with, with the left projection, because we know what strict and absolute moralists they are. Nobody's more morally certain of himself than the left-wing activists. We all know that. Forget all the, the garbage about atheism right now and the progressive contempt for religion and so on. There, if you observe them at all, you know they're on a crusade based on multiple moral precepts themselves, clearly. But they project that moral certainty onto, onto their Christian conservative rivals. You've witnessed this a million times because we know how much they despise Christian conservatives. Mostly for what they view as their hypocrisy. They're obsessed with the hypocrisy of right-wing Christians. They use it often to entirely discredit them, as if you can make an argument for murder simply by pointing out that the pastor once murdered someone. Anyway. But what the left never hears is us screaming back at them, yes, exactly. The phrase used often is, it's a church of sinners. We know. You see, the, the difference is humility. Yes, you go to church on Sunday, accept and perform the sacraments. You leave the parish, you start your week, and then you fail miserably sometimes. Sunday comes, rinse, repeat. You're chasing perfection. 
so there's this belief in constant attempts at redemption, actual redemption, mercy, God's grace, love, forgiveness. I mean, you've heard all this stuff before, I hope. Patience, tolerance, and then hopefully someday your perfection and the conversion of your enemy. Because if your wretched self can receive God's grace, then so can anybody else. And that's just not how it plays itself out for secular religionists. And again, leftism certainly is a religion, but it's not Christian. It's collectivist and totalitarian. They're not, they're not waiting for you to receive God's grace and finally see things their way. No, it's no justice, no peace. Again, we alone are the good men. Say your name, shut your mouth, kneel down and apologize. Remember, what was the quote? Scroll back up. They've taken a lease on virtue entirely for themselves. You don't agree with them? Well, then you're a racist, a deplorable, or at best, they just pity you. Your descent simply stems from your privilege. You don't know because you've never been poor. You've never been black. You've never been gay and so on and so on. So yes, you could say, at least by half, I've sort of named my podcast after the people I most <laughs> despise. After the people we're watching burning our buildings down, accosting people simply trying to dine at a restaurant. I remember a priest once telling me when I was a teenager that if he was in the Roman courtyard that day, he couldn't say for sure that he wouldn't have been one of the people screaming, crucify him. And that was pretty shocking to me. You know, what do you mean? You're a priest. Like, of course you would have been one of the good men standing up to the authorities. Do you see how simple it is? Easy virtue to just post the right thing on Facebook. The virtue signaling. Wave the rainbow flag. Call everyone you disagree with a Nazi. And we see progressives do that all the time. Look at Antifa for the prime example here. Anti-fascist. They name themselves after that. It's much more difficult, humbling, and intellectual discipline. There's wisdom here to consider the possibility that you're the Nazi. That's the wisdom lacking on the left. That's the goodness that's lacking. That you also might have gone along with the crowd in the 1930s. You might have been saluting Hitler yourself. But everyone wants to imagine themselves or assume that they wouldn't have been depraved when the moment came or cowardly. It's humility because we need God's grace. We're chasing perfection. They think they've already achieved it. And that slight modification of the mind, that's one way to see radical alterations in people's behavior. 
A perfect example of what I'm talking about came last year. Democrats' treatment of Amy Coney Barrett. Do you remember this? During her confirmation hearings to the Seventh Circuit Court. Okay, so Trump nominates her. She's a Notre Dame law professor and a devout Catholic. So here it comes. Among other ignorant remarks, this was Senator Dianne Feinstein addressing Barrett. Quote, you are controversial. You have a long history of believing that your religious beliefs should prevail. When you read your speeches, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you. And that's of concern when you come to big issues that large numbers of people have fought for years in this country. And, you know, in case my, my voice doesn't do it justice, you know, here it is. The dogma lives loudly within you. And that's of concern when you come to big issues that large numbers of people have fought for. Okay. Senator Dianne Feinstein, Democrat. And, you know, so there it is again. The left has no problem with Christians unless, you know, like they actually believe in Christianity. More, more to the point, though, they strongly suspect, obviously, that conservatives are as unprincipled as they are. That they, too, will make judgments not by the letter of the law, but by, you know, their personal whims, the judicial activism that the left has become so infamous for. So do you see the projection or, or, or like the Christian caricature progressives have in their mind? That it's like that left-wing assumption that conservatives are the ones seeking to forego their secular duties and institute some sort of theocracy over them. So Clarence Thomas, Justice Clarence Thomas, finally got the chance to address this at some point. And here, here's what he said, according to this one report, quote, I thought we got away from, from religious tests, said Thomas, who was also a Catholic. I don't think I know a single judge who has allowed religion to interfere with their jobs. If anything, Thomas argued that a judge of faith attempting to use the bench to control Americans was less likely than such designs from a judge dominated by other ideologies. So I wonder what ideologies he's referring to there, right? Thomas went on to say, quote, I think if you start the day on your knees, you approach your job differently from when you start thinking that someone anointed you to impose your will on others. So that's exactly right. It's the secular left. It's always the left enforcing uniformity by all means necessary. Whether it's riots or judicial tyranny or boycotts, shutting down speeches or whatever. These leftists will never give credit or they'll never understand that it was devout Christians who had crafted and cemented things like the First Amendment. They enshrined it into law a long time ago that nobody has to be a Christian, that intellectual force is wrong and immoral, and that you can say and believe whatever you want. And even, even today, it's conservatives on the front lines, not liberals, on the, on the front lines, the forefront of the free speech movement and other things to protect the spirit of the First Amendment. While what, liberals are out there forcing you to bake cakes for their gay weddings or forcing Catholic nuns to pay for abortions. Remember, it's we alone are the good men. And that's all we need to know. And then the mind shuts down because now, as far as you're concerned, 
you're at war. So you stop listening to your rivals. You become more barbarian. You shut down your neighbors and your classmates who disagree. Cancel culture. You forget all about your commitment to liberalism and an open society. And it's you who ends up drifting into intellectual oblivion. Okay, so why now? Why a podcast now? Well, I might have never taken things more seriously than I do right now. Not to be too dramatic, but thinking of my three kids probably has something to do with that. The oldest is four and a half. And I think there's sort of a, an internal clock we all have where you can sort of look out across your lifespan or your probable lifespan and assume perhaps that oh, you'll be gone before the greatest country on earth collapses anyway. You know, sort of a natural selfish outlook really. But all of a sudden kids and grandkids snap you out of that selfishness in a way. And now you have to consider their hopes and dreams or the hopes you have for them, all that stuff. So I'm certain that has something to do with this. But with what we see going on across the country in regard to Black Lives Matter and, you know, these riots and all, and, and I've always taken things seriously in regard to the danger that the, the political left poses to the country. I mean, 17 years ago, I wrote an entire book about what is happening inside the Ivy League and the un-American, anti-American brainwashing going on. And that someday you can probably look forward to leaders whose minds have been twisted. And now, now I have to wonder if they've succeeded. You know, if they, have, have liberals reached that critical mass of people who live on the same wavelength as them? People who, you can tell that just liberal slogans simply resonate with them. Millions of people just say racism, or just say Black Lives Matter, and boom, you can watch them mobilize. You know, my college classmates, you know, what, they, what they did was they made such a terrible mess of the university. And now I really do see that playing out in the larger culture. And I think a lot of people ignore the nutty stories that come out of colleges, the campus, because there's a tendency to say, oh, this is, those are just kids. Or that's just how the academic world is. It's always been that way. You know, when they graduate, they grow up. But now we see these maladjusted maladjusted adults not just inner city young black men but white upper middle class college educated adults heaving molotov cocktails it was a Pawtucket teacher who got caught defacing the christopher columbus statue in downtown providence it's not unlike what we've discovered regarding radical islam Many of the terrorists come from affluent families. This is more than a poverty issue. This ideology at play. What we refer to a lot as brainwashing. I mean, did you think the kids wearing the Che Guevara shirts didn't represent a danger at some point in the future? Did you think like all of this would end when we started saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Like that type of ridiculous political correctness and that cultural Marxism needed to be crushed like upon its birth 
and it wasn't. As many warnings that were out there, it just didn't stop. It escalated. The campus has become a cartoon. Safe spaces and trigger warnings. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld is not the only one. There are comedians now who won't even go to colleges anymore to perform because the kids have zero sense of humor. Cancel culture. And where do you think that emanated from? The college leftists have been rationalizing their totalitarian controlled speech code for decades. And now CEOs are being forced to step down. Small businesses boycotted due to the wrong retweet from seven years ago. And you think Facebook isn't essentially book burning conservative posts? That's not a conspiracy theory. And if you've spent time on a college campus, it's all familiar to you. This top-down elitist mentality, like the college educated's right to be in positions of power and to force you to run your life as they deem appropriate, who you can hire, who you can fire, what the wages will be, right to required diversity standards on corporate boards, mandated numbers of women, minorities, queer folk. Spend any time on a college campus and that must sound familiar too. I once wrote an entire chapter called Diversity University based on that racial obsession, that single focus, that brainwashing. It isn't, so it's, it's not just the rise of Black Lives Matter and Antifa. We've been watching the erosion of traditional American culture for some time. And you have to wonder if the brainwashing and, and the resentment against this country has reached a critical mass. And it makes you nervous because there's a lot of evidence that shows that that is what's happening. And, and just like the dopey college kids, with all of this comes an erosion of the American mind. And nowhere is this more evident than inside the Democratic Party. I mean, did you catch any of the Democratic National Convention? It was a freak show. It was all broadcast on Zoom, I believe, and most of it streamed. But these are, this is a national audience, and they invited, I mean, you might have heard of the Mermaid Queen King from out of Wake Forest. They invited this woman who identifies as a mermaid. And maybe you're thinking, oh, maybe she's just a cute, trying to be cute. But this is a radical moron. And I pulled it up. Where's the headline? I pulled it up for you. DNC panel features Mermaid Queen King who calls for the abolition of ICE, the abolition of the police and the prisons. The abolition of the police. The Democratic National Convention on Tuesday featured a panelist who identifies as a non-binary, gender transcendent Mermaid Queen King and who called for the abolition of the police, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and the prisons. Jay Mai is a black Vietnamese, transgender, non-binary, gender transcendent mermaid queen king. She, she didn't crash the party. This was an invited speaker. There isn't an idea ridiculous enough. Speaking of abolishing the police, there just isn't an idea 
ridiculous enough that your more liberal-minded friends and family won't eventually adopt. Can we, social, can we start with socialism? Let's just start there. Bernie Sanders. That should be embarrassing that your default, and, but it's not to them. That's where this party is. When your default economic system is socialism to solve problems, to be anti-capitalist by, your, by, by philosophy, That's lunacy. I don't know how far back you got to go, but maybe 20, 30 years ago, that, that could not have been said inside the Democratic Party. But again, here's the Democratic National Convention. This future that we all want, that we're all trying to build, um, really is about the destruction of colonization, white supremacy, and capitalism. That's another invited speaker at the Democratic National Convention. Given a national audience with four other people on the panel nodding their heads, yeah, the destruction of capitalism. And I don't think there's something to be said about Democratic voters who hear that and are not alarmed. You can go down the list. There isn't, a, and like I said, there isn't an idea nutty enough that could scare them. Many of them anyway. Voter ID, no borders, transgender bathrooms. It just goes on and on. This is what I, I've said this before, I've argued this before that because the left has gone, the Democratic Party has gone so nutty, it's, it's caused conser the conservative movement to be this defender of common sense before they get into anything that's even you know, in the name of limited government. I mean, voter ID and protecting the border and laws against public transgender bathrooms are actually regulations and government activity that conservatives are, call are, are calling for. Because the left is always on the march. And that's another huge difference between the left and the right. The left is always on the march. It never stops. It's like the waves coming in from the ocean. You cannot stop the constant attempts to make ground. The Green New Deal, I'm not gonna go into it, but the Green New Deal, full-term abortion and even beyond, on-demand, taxpayer-funded, so that even nuns have to pay for your, for your, for your nine-month abortions. This isn't, in terms of abortion, this is not the clump of cells argument anymore. That's how far it's gone. That's how radical it is. I mean, racial and gender identity transitions, actual discussions over whether a white person can actually be black if he thinks he is. If a man can actually be a woman if he thinks he is. How about transitioning your four-year-old into the opposite gender? Ask your, ask your liberal friends if they think that's a parental right. Boys competing on girls' athletic teams, stealing scholarship spots. The pronoun craze. You know, actual, watch Democratic, watch Democratic, uh, 
conventions or events and watch them introduce themselves. Hey, my name's Travis. Um, pronouns are he and them. It's absurd. A father of a young girl who got accepted into Brown University received her acceptance letter. Did you see this last year, was it? And he thought they made grammatical errors in her acceptance letter because they kept referring to her as them and there throughout the acceptance letter. And then, then all of a sudden he just noticed like, no, Brown University is just that woke. They didn't want to assume his daughter's gender. So they used, so they used gender neutral pronouns. I think that story ends with the father not sending her to Brown University. I, I'd have to double check that, but that's how that ended. This is what William F. Buckley meant when he, when he said conservatism is standing athwart history, screaming, stop. Lunacy and madness on the, on the Democratic left. Okay, how about white privilege? I bet your liberal democratic friends use this term regularly, type it on their social media posts, say it in their everyday speech. White privilege is pure racism wrapped up as academic theory. You've probably seen all the stuff about critical race theory recently. And where do you think that got started? The average Democrat now will full on embrace hardcore anti-white racism, reflexively. White privilege, white privilege, white privilege. And they can do this because they've redefined racism to signify the power any racial group retains in society. So according to them, blacks have no power, so blacks can't be racist. Anti-white sentiment can't be racist because the neo-Marxist perspective is that whites are the oppressors and blacks are the victims. So sure, I'll kneel before, you know, black radical activists and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Have you seen this? Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden getting on their knees with their head down. Gosh, but that's what woke people do. The enlightened turn their little boys into girls apologize for being white, they hate America, and they dice up their babies. Because along with liberalism comes an intellectual degradation and a moral depravity, even a bloodthirst. And that's not hyperbole. I won't use Planned Parenthood as an example to prove my point and full-term abortions. I won't even... I won't even use the easiest example. I won't, even, I won't even point to the riots. Although, I will mention URI professor Eric Loomis. Did you see this the other day? A Rhode Island professor appeared to defend the murder of a right-wing Portland protester. In a comment on his blog, Loomis said, quote, I see nothing wrong with it, at least from a moral perspective. From a moral perspective? What, like, what perspective did you think anyone else would come at it from? Murder. How did, he, how, did he, how did he defend himself from saying that? For saying that? Oh, because according to Loomis, the guy who was killed was a quote-unquote fascist. 
Yeah, yeah, these conservatives, these Trump supporters, these MAGA hat wearing fascists, right? That's how, if you listen to the rhetoric of Antifa or any mainstream progressive protester and how they defend themselves, how these liberals defend themselves for being so illiberal all the time, it's always, well, they're Nazis. These conservatives, these Republicans, you can shut them down because they're akin to Nazis. And isn't there a line that you would draw? Wouldn't you kill a Nazi? This is scary stuff, but that is how they sleep at night. That's how they convince themselves that they're still the good people, even as they commit over and over again immoral acts. Fascist activity. Shutting down speech, taking to the streets, burning buildings, beating people up, and even killing them. Fascist activity, illiberal acts, and they sleep at night. Well, you know, we could just acknowledge the perpetual violence that left-wing activists have always been guilty of. I mean, should we talk about the unions? It's amazing what you can get used to and forget. If Trump gets reelected, get ready. Because they rioted and destroyed property when he was first elected. That's why I can't stand people blaming Trump's rhetoric for causing the violence. Are you crazy? Trayvon Martin and Black Lives Matter didn't start the fire. Thank you, Billy Joel. They didn't start the fire. Progressives have been burning and ravaging campuses, assaulting and accosting conservatives for years. Union socialist violence. How many examples do we have of their thuggery? Have we forgotten Occupy Wall Street? We shouldn't have let them get away with that either. Here's, here's something. I pulled this up too. Here's what... Here's what I collected and reported in 2012, I think. Let's see. For the past several months, Americans have witnessed members of the Occupy movement defecate on a New York City police car, burn American flags, spit on a Coast Guard member, make calls for violent overthrows of the US government, provoke police officers, assault police officers, defame capitalism, laud socialism and communism, distribute Marxist literature, spread hatred and envy against other Americans, threaten Macy's with a Molotov cocktail. They've heaved smoke bombs toward the White House, expressed a torrent of anti-Semitism, allow their encampments to, de to, to degenerate into drug orgies and establish an overall culture of mayhem that has resulted in murders, rapes, public masturbation, the destruction of property, thousands of arrests, and millions of dollars in public expenditures. Don't, don't we remember 2012 and the Occupy movement? This isn't Trump's fault. This is the political left. These are Democrats. And these are the people who would never commit voter fraud, right? These types would never conspire to spy on a, or and dethrone a sitting president with a Russia collusion hoax or take the nation through a drummed up impeachment charge. No, not, not these people. 
This is why I can't stand the Trump caused this crap coming from the left and the media. How, his divisive rhetoric? They've been doing this for years. Well before President Trump said a word. Do you know how much conservatives, I'll use the word, hated Obama? How divisive we found him? You couldn't make the American right act like this. Black Lives Matter is basically just Occupy Wall Street version two. Better operating system, more funding, armed with the knowledge of what they were able to get away with the first time when Democratic mayors and governors accommodated them. The same thing here with Antifa, BLM. Democrats offering anywhere between outright applause to encouragement to tacit approval of their activity. Then, then there's the media you have to discuss, and we will. Obviously, the press, there's a press core that clearly either sympathizes with all of this or finds it more important to cover it all up in order to secure Democratic victories. And that's the point. Good, good Americans are armed, and there are millions of them. And we probably, I do believe in the phenomenon of the silent majority. So that, that's a reason for hope. But these good Americans are armed with an imperfect and often impotent Republican Party. Let me stop for one second on the GOP. We can probably go all day on their failures and hypocrisy, sure. I tend to sympathize with Republicans because the media is not on their side and they tend to basically dance, they're basically forced to dance with the devil and compromise with them. But when it comes to being nervous about the future, that's particularly true when we consider this runaway debt, Social Security, Medicare, and the debt. And I was really hoping that Trump would tackle this, the entitlements, because he seems like a guy who likes to tackle big problems. And if, you could, if you, anyone could ever explain to him what's coming, he might get excited about saving the country from this economic doom. And as Rhode Islanders, we've seen up close the horrors of unfunded pension systems and the economic suffocation it causes. Imagine that same issue swallowing the entire country. And I, I just don't see any political will to tackle it. A shame on the Republicans for not forcing that issue. But anyway, yes, a flawed GOP that dukes it out for us with a Democratic Party that now houses all this radicalism I'm talking, I'm talking about, all the radicalism I'm talking about. You guys remember this? It's been 15 years since MoveOn.org's president wrote about the Democratic Party that we bought it, we own it referring to the far left's capture of the party. And now like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, it's like, is the party's young darling? Just an unapologetic socialist. Pelosi, the she's a San Francisco nut, is the speaker. And that former Soviet sympathizing communist romantic is the party's godfather. They won't criticize Antifa. It's just a party that grows more radically un-American and anti-American by the day. 
And that just wouldn't have happened if the mainstream press wasn't in on it. Because even many Democratic voters aren't the raving lunatics they appear to be on election day. And I, th I think there's a tendency to think that if Trump wins, everything's going to be okay. I mean, certainly that will be a promising sign that we can, that we can beat this thing back. And then there's the Durham probe. You know, like if Trump wins and if, it, and if the Durham probe results in certain Democrats getting the justice they deserve for the, for the Russia collusion hoax and, 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 and receiving prison time, then, then everything will be okay. But this, there's also a long game here that you, have, that you have to be concerned with. How do you secure America for another 250 years? The founders were also concerned with posterity. As, as we should be. And I'm always brought back to Dennis Prager's excellent answer to this, to this question. What is America's greatest problem? And this, this soundbite I'm gonna play for you, it, it might almost be two minutes long, but trust me, it's worth it. It's something, it's something I've sent out a number of times over the years, and then we'll try, and then we'll try to wrap it up. But what is America's greatest problem? No, it's not Obama. It's not. If, 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 God forbid, President Obama came down with an illness, nothing would change. Nothing. I believe the greatest threat facing America, I believe this my entire adult life, is that we have not passed on what it means to be American to this generation. You cannot... Let, 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 me, let me make this... This is not a, a, a sweet line. This is meant literally. A, a society does not survive if it does not have a reason to survive. That's true for individuals. Where there is a why, there is a how. I hate to tell you who said it, Nietzsche, but nevertheless, it remains true. We have lost the why. The greatest generation did not teach my generation what Americanism is. It's not its fault. It wasn't taught. This goes back 100 years to John Dewey, to the importation of European professors, to our universities, to a whole host of issues. The average American who deeply loves this country and even has conservative values cannot articulate what those values are. It is no one's fault, but that is the greatest threat. When we understand this American trinity, and God we trust, liberty, e pluribus unum, that is unique. American. It is not European. The French preferred fraternité and liberté and égalité, equality. We don't, as I explained in my talk. We believe in equality of birth, but not equality of result. When it is understood what America stands for, when it is understood that there is a moral dimension to a smaller government. It is not an economic question, it is a moral question. We give far more charity per capita than Europeans do. Why? Are we born better? No. The bigger the government, the worse the citizen. They are preoccupied in Europe with how much time off. Where will they vacation? When will they retire? These are selfish questions. These are not altruistic questions. So the goodness that America America created is jeopardized by our not knowing what we stand for. That's our greatest threat. We are our problem. It's not Obama. It's the fact that millions of Americans would actually vote for him twice. 
is the fact that millions of Americans could not recognize Barack Obama for what he was. That tens of millions of Americans are now incapable of connecting the dots between what you see in the streets today and the Democratic Party. And that includes the Rhode Island Democratic Party, which will be our focus as much as possible. Or even before what's going on right now, Donald Trump, Black Lives Matter, the economic suffering, the poverty, and all the dysfunction inside the inner cities, including and especially the city of Providence, understanding that that is the result of full-blown, unleashed democratic leadership. People just haven't connected those dots yet. You know, and there are certainly solutions out there. I mean, that's what this is about. That's, I'm not doing this to waste my time. As conservatives, we believe we have answers in the form of policy. You know, but first, uh, I think the best thing I can offer is to point out what I pointed out 15 to 20 years ago, the danger that these people represent, what they truly think, what they truly want, most importantly, how far they're willing to go to get what they want. So yes, the media imbalance in this country is a huge part of the problem. At the end of the day, that's sort of what this podcast is. We're an element of the new media. And we'll do our small part to reach some portion of the millions of Americans out there who just haven't connected the dots yet. And we'll have some fun while doing it, I promise. Okay, so this has been the first episode of Good Men. This is only the beginning, I promise, as they say. Can't wait for the next one, actually. Wait till you see who we go after next. Make sure you tune into the second episode. But right now, this good man has got to go.